Good morning to the Living Church at Berean. I want to wish you a grace-filled, joyful, faithful, and humble new year. And if you experience those things, it will be a happy new year. I want to invite you, as is our custom, if you are able to stand with me as we honor the Word of God and read this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. Follow along as I read. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observation the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you that you have preserved this part of the story of your living church. And we share that DNA with this first century church. And we desire to be faithful to it. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who is alive in us and on our behalf, will speak to every single one of us today with an application that we can take with us so that we can be more and more like Jesus and follow him better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you're reading blogs, if you're uh, listening to the news, if you're listening to talk radio, if you're doing anything in the last couple of weeks, you've heard a lot of people asking you the question, what are your plans for the new year? Do you have a plan for 2016? And many people are ready to offer us a recipe for how to put one of those plans together. Many of them are very sound. Many of them have good principles. And maybe you have a plan for this next year that you're going to, going to implement. Perhaps it's a good plan based on wisdom from the past, on experiences you've had, on things that have worked for you, and it's solid and the process is fairly predictable, and you're going to work that process. But perhaps you're counting on your plan to take you to a whole new level this year. That's not good. Oh, I don't need this. I'm already late. Somebody will come. Anybody out there? Do you have a phone? No. Sorry. Somebody! Hello? There are two people stuck on an escalator and we need help. Now. Would somebody please do something? Help! 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 <laughs> I don't believe this. You gotta be kidding me. 
I'm going to cry. <laughs> well, there's nothing else left to do. Sit. As the traffic sign says, expect delays. You are going to have some escalator moments this year. And maybe you're in one of those right now, where the plan that has always worked for you, the plan you thought was perfect for you, the things that you were counting on to take you to a new level suddenly come to a stop. And though you may get down the road and in hindsight, it seems obvious why they were happening and what you needed to do, when you're going through it, you don't understand. You don't know what to do because you feel like you're riding on the wisdom that God allowed you to have. Well, as we open up this passage today, it's going to show us how the living church gets unstuck from several escalator moments that happened in the life of Paul and in the life of the early church. Well, let me repack your backpack a little bit. We're back in the book of Acts, if you didn't notice, and uh, we're uh, revisiting this whole idea of the church on a movement, the church in mission. And as we look at the book of Acts, let me take you to Paul's second missionary journey, which we are now beginning in Acts chapter 16. Paul went from Antioch back to Antioch on the first journey. Now he's starting again in Antioch, and he's going westward and visiting the churches and strengthening them. And it's here that we pick up his trail as he comes to Lystra and Derby. Now, the second missionary journey is a longer one for the Apostle Paul, but it's all about the church on mission. And what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is very simple. It's one thing. It's to make disciples. To make more disciples and to make deeper disciples, it's to make disciples. In fact, to be, to be reminded of what Jesus told us to do, we turn back to a very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And it never hurts us to be reminded of this. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A couple of things to notice about this and refresh our minds about this. It basically says there are two aspects to discipleship. The one is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, people cross over from unbelief to belief when they believe in the identity and the purpose of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the first aspect of discipleship. But there's another one. Jesus said, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. That's an ongoing, lifelong mentoring that every one of us is undergoing to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So as a living church, we want to see people come to faith in Jesus, to believe in Him, and we want to see people move on with Him in growing in their personal spiritual life. Notice here it says that Jesus says this with all authority. He said, I have all authority and I'm delegating that to you. So it's still our authority and assignment to make disciples. And he says, this is good to the end of the age. So it's still extant today. These are our marching orders. These are our walking concerns. This is everything we do. It's our core concern. It's our core curriculum. It's our core conviction is to make 
disciples, to make more disciples and to make deeper disciples for Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 16 shows us a glimpse of how dynamic and how flexible and how ongoing this can be despite many escalator moments that can be inferred into this passage. So we want to look at it, and I want to give you three overarching principles of how you can be a part of making disciples, all of us. And these can, be, can come down to very many different specifics, but these are high-level, high-altitude principles that invite us to be engaged in making disciples. And the first principle is this, and that is recruiting the willing. Recruiting the willing. We are not a coercive ministry. We can't force people to do anything. Even preachers shouting loudly can't force people to do things. We're a persuasive ministry. We persuade people, and so we recruit the willing. Notice it says in verse 1 that they went to Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy. He had probably become a disciple on the first missionary journey. And he had been brought into a deeper sense of his faith by his mother and his grandmother, who were Jewish. Apparently, his father was not a believer, but Timothy was a known disciple of Jesus. And then notice what it says in verse 2. It says that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He was not only a disciple, he was an obvious disciple, a growing disciple of Jesus. And this brings us to a very important aspect of discipleship. That discipleship is always spoken of in the New Testament as developmental. In other words, when you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to believe in Him, you become a disciple. The question is, are you a growing disciple or not? So it's always developmental. There's a very popular book out now, and I, I, I encourage you to read it, but I, but I think it gives us a false choice. It's a good book because it calls us to deeper commitment. It calls us to paying the price and the cost of being a disciple. But I feel like it gives us a false choice because it says, basically, are you a fan or are you a follower? In other words, it's binary. You're one or the other. It's black or white. It's on or off. It's yes or no. And it's this kind of thinking that often we believe, well, there's the ordinary Christian there's the person who sits in the chair and listens to the preacher and pays the bills and, and does the program. And then there's some kind of a, a turbo Christian, and they're called disciples. No, we're all called disciples. We're all called to another stage of development. We're called to be growing daily in our following, our perception of Him, our understanding of Him, and our obedience of Him to be that kind of disciple. So it's not on or off, it's a matter of development. Because what are some of the words that are used in the New Testament? They're words like, you're born, you walk, you grow, you progress, you put on, you, you put off, you mature, you press on. It's developmental. And I say this to encourage you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. The question is, what can you do to grow in your discipleship? What will commend you to others like Timothy? How will people notice that you are following Jesus? That's what a disciple does. Well, then we come to verse 3, and Paul recruits Timothy for a new challenge. You know, Paul basically goes to Timothy and says, Timothy, uh, I've noticed your life, and how would you like to leave your family, possess nothing, 
sleep on the ground, be spat upon, beaten, and thrown out of town in many successive ways as you follow with me. And Timothy says, hey, I'm all for that. I'm all in. Now, Timothy's being asked to be a disciple in a specific way. None of us live in the first century, and few of us will be challenged to follow Jesus as a cross-cultural church planter. Your discipleship, however, is usually meant to be lived out right where you are, right in the neighborhood that you occupy, right inside the extended family that you've just spent too much time with over the holidays, right in your workplace, right on that team that you serve on, right inside the school or the locker room or the the sports team you play on. You're asked to be a disciple and develop where you are. God is calling every single one of us to be recruited by Him and to be willing through Him to be a disciple and to follow Him every single day. But wait a minute, in verse 3, what's going on here? Look what happens. In verse verse 3, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. What is this all about? Now, we're going to go back next week. We're a little out of sequence. Pastor Wes is going to teach us uh, about what happened in Acts chapter 15, and, and he'll probably take several months to do that, as we know. Uh, it's, a, it's a critical chapter. All the apostles meet in Jerusalem to determine one thing. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? And what they decide was it means Christ and nothing else. In chapter 15, verse 11, Peter summarizes it and says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, just as the Gentiles will. So that's the one criteria, the grace of Jesus Christ believed and received into our lives. And they specifically said, you do not need to become Jewish, you don't need to follow the ceremonial law, you don't need to be circumcised to be a full, fully devoted disciple of Jesus. So what in the world is Paul doing practically as the first thing he does to mount his second missionary journey when he takes Timothy and has him circumcised? Well, here's something to wrap your mind around, and we can talk about it much more. The theologian Paul is absolutely tenacious to keep the gospel precise about the truth. And the truth is you become a Christ one, as it says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, when you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart something that you can't see, that God has raised Him from the dead. So in other words, when you believe properly the content of the Bible, of the Scripture and the Gospel, and then you follow one who has risen from the dead. When you put those two things together, you're a Christ follower. So what is Paul doing here? He wants to be precise about the Gospel in the truth, but he wants to, as a church planter, he wants the Gospel to be accessible. So Paul is saying what makes for bad theology of the Gospel may in fact be helpful methodology to spread the gospel. And that's not hypocrisy, but it is a nuance we wrestle with even today. How do we become like those who need the gospel enough so that they will hear it from us? And I believe what Paul is doing here is he's simply removing the stumbling blocks for the Jews. They didn't want to talk about about Timothy's pedigree since his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. They didn't want to go into all that. They wanted to take that out of the conversation so that when they went to these synagogues, they could simply talk about Jesus and the gospel. 
And that is something we wrestle with in every culture. What's necessary? What do we need to show? How can we be the, the living church in a way that does not make people stumble over the gospel itself? I learned this as a young pastor uh, back in the 70s. Uh, the 70s, by the way, were a bad hair decade. And uh, we all tried to grow hair in those days. Women obviously had lots of hair, but men were trying to grow hair, and they all wanted to look like Joe Namath, you know, with the, the mutton chops and the handlebar mustache. And, and so people were growing hair, hair was growing over their ears and all this. And, and uh, I had a friend of mine who was a disciple maker, and, and he was invited to come and speak at a very conservative Bible college. And he was going to speak at their chapel, and uh, they sent him their rules and regulations. Now, Ron had uh, mutton chop sideburns, and he had a big handlebar mustache and hair that was over the tops of his ears. And uh, he got their rules and regulations, and they said, you can't have sideburns longer than halfway down your ear, and you can't have any facial hair. And, you, and your hair can't be over your ears. So this was sort of orthodoxy for them. And I was kind of all up in arms going, Ron, you just go in there and just be free. Show them how, what it means. They don't have to keep their rules to come and speak in their chapel. It was easy for me to say because I was sending him, right? <laughs> but here's what Ron said to me. He said, if that's what it takes to reach those students and help them be better disciples, I don't mind cutting my sideburns and shaving off my mustache because that's what's necessary. And over and over and over again in the New Testament, this principle is, is shown. Paul said, hey, I'm free. I have a right to be free. I don't have to be Jew. I don't have to be Greek. I am free. But he said, I gladly make myself a slave. Why? So that by all means, some will hear and be saved. That's what I believe is happening here in chapter 16 as Paul recruits the willing, Timothy himself. There's a deeper consistency, and the consistency is about the gospel itself. Now, let's not lose our principle, which was recruiting the willing, because that's your job. That's my job. And no matter what technology we use, no matter how many times we broadcast things or put it out on the web or we tweet it or whatever we do, there's nothing as powerful as you doing what the New Testament church did, and that is going to someone and saying, come with me. Or in Minnesotan, we say, come with. Nothing beats the power of you saying, come with me to the missional community training. Come with me to my small group. Come with me to dinner. Come with me to the retreat. Come with me on a marriage enrichment weekend. Come with me to church. Come with us on Easter. Nothing will beat the power of your simply recruiting and inviting someone to come. We can't coerce. We can't trick. We don't bait and switch. We simply say, come. And it's even more powerful when we're asking someone to take a step up in discipleship to do what Paul did. He said, essentially, he went to Timothy. He said, I've observed your lifestyle. I have seen how you've grown and the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And I really want you to join me in a new challenge. You see, that's how we get new leaders in the church. That's how we see people progress to become teachers and disciples and leaders. Is somebody says, you know, I've seen what you've done. I've seen your faithfulness. I've observed your lifestyle. Come alongside me and help me. And that's exactly what Paul was doing with Timothy and with Silas and later 
with Luke. You know, with 2020 hindsight, Paul must have thought that his escalator had stopped. I mean, after all, he, he had been with Barnabas for years, and they were like lightning and thunder. They were a perfect match for each other. But in chapter 15, we find out that Paul and Barnabas had parted company. They disagreed over the taking of John Mark on the next mission trip. Barnabas wanted to take him. Paul didn't think he was ready, so they disagreed and they parted ways. But both of them kept doing the mission of the church. That stopping of the escalator made Timothy and Silas and Luke a part of the new team that God was forming. God moved Paul toward the mission of the church through the Holy Spirit to adapt and be flexible. Well, there's a second principle here about how we make disciples today, and that is the reparenting the teachable. It's recruiting the willing, and it's reparenting the teachable. As I talk to people about discipleship, as I talk to them about being a disciple, I'm aware that the word is used in so many places and with so many different shadings that we almost need a new word for it. So here's my word for at least the function. And that is that we as disciples, as we follow Jesus, we get reparented. None of us have perfect biological parents. But we all now have a perfect heavenly father. And when we're invited into the family of God, what happens is not only does the Father reparent our emotions and our volition and our mind, but we meet others of His children who are excellent at mirroring who He is because they have His gifting and they have His character. And so I've been reparented my whole Christian life. I've seen other couples who have something in their marriage that looks like Jesus, and I've tried to emulate that. I've seen people who have a gift of service or a a gift of faith or a a courage in their evangelism, and I've seen that that's what Jesus looks like, and God is reparenting me and reparenting you by putting you in a family where discipleship grows. This is what is happening here. Look at verse 4. It says, as they went on their way through the cities. Now, that sounds to me like Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it talks about fathers. How do you train your children? It isn't sit them down in a classroom and have them take notes. No, fathers train their children spiritually by speaking occasionally to them, that which fits the occasion. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you sit down at a meal, when you walk along the way, you teach your children this way. And this is exactly what Paul is doing with Timothy. As they went on their way, Paul is not saying, come into an academic program, and I've That's very beneficial. I've been through something like that. But Paul is saying, share a way of life with me. Walk alongside me. And here's what it looked like from Paul's perspective and what Timothy gained from it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Obviously, a letter written to Timothy. Paul writes, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Paul says, Timothy, I was proactive with you. What was inside my heart, I made, I made known to you because you wouldn't know it otherwise. He said, I made known to you my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, and my faith. It wasn't urgent, but it was essential. And so I talked about that as we 
walked along the way. Secondly, he said, you've had a front row seat to see how I responded to the things I couldn't control. As you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that he had a lot of trouble. So he says, you've seen my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, and my sufferings, and the stuff that happened to me along the way. Timothy got to observe a man who was wrestling for the sake of the gospel, who never lost sight of the mission that God had for him, who during those escalator moments when things that were perfectly planned and well mapped out for him came to a halt, and he responded as a disciple, and Timothy was reparented by the responses of the Apostle Paul. Many of us here have some escalator stories where we thought things were going the way they should go, and suddenly things stop. And someone is able to come along and say, you know, here's what I believe God would have you think about. Here's a way you could respond. Here's a way that I've been through something similar to this myself. And the family of God reparents us and helps us take another step into obedience and to be on about the mission, which is making disciples. Now, before we go on to the third principle of the morning, I want to ask you, do you think that Paul was in the will of God in this chapter? Because many times when we read something like this, we'd say, he must not have been listening very well. Listen to what it says in, in verses uh, 6 to 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Look at the map, what's happening. Paul was thinking logically, I will go to the chief city of the region, which is Ephesus. It's on the west coast of what the province called Asia. So he's going to walk his way through Asia and plant churches and preach the gospel there, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there. So Paul said, well, let's go north, let's go into Bithynia along the southern coast of the Black Sea. And the Holy Spirit said, I forbid you from going here. So all Paul is hearing is, no, no, you can't go there, you can't go here. And so he, he goes in between them and he goes through Mysia and then finally ends up in Troas, which is on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Now, what if you had been Timothy in this process? You'd be thinking on your Facebook posts every day, well, we're supposed to be planting churches, evangelizing, and strengthening churches, and, and every day we just get up and walk another 20 miles. This is a 350-mile walk that they're on, and they're not doing any of the things that Paul talked about doing. Well, here's the third principle. It's responding to guidance. We recruit the willing... We reparent the teachable, but we respond to God's guidance, and many times that guidance comes to us while we're standing on a stopped and stuck escalator wanting, Lord, what do you want me to do now? But the Holy Spirit was leading. And I love this. I love this chapter. And later in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that he at times was perplexed. And I love that about Paul, because I've spent most of my pastoral life perplexed. I really mean that. 
When you're dealing with a counseling situation, when you're dealing with families, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with the church, there are so many uncountable variables that you're always stepping into situations. You don't know how to figure it out. It's perplexity, and so it's been of great consolation to me that I'm not the only one. Paul didn't always know what he was doing. He didn't always know how he was going to get there. And what a great comfort that is to all of us. In fact, at one time I heard a counselor Larry Crabb say this. He said, most Christians are not willing to be confused long enough to hear the real answer to their problems. Let me say it again. Most Christians are not willing to be confused long enough to hear the real answer to their problems. Why is that? Because we want it now. And we have people all around us saying, take these three steps, do these five things. And those, that counsel may be well meant, but many times, and this chapter is a great illustration to us, there will be confusion. But Paul never stopped his mission. He never doubted what he ought to be doing, even though his escalator stopped. And for a while, he was probably confused. He didn't demand that God give him something now, today. Now, we're not going to make a spiritual virtue out of perplexity. But neither do we want to make a spiritual virtue out of perfection either. And so often when things don't work the way we thought they should be, when the church doesn't accomplish what its goals were, when I have a plan and it doesn't work out, we tend to heap shame on ourselves and blame on others instead of saying, Holy Spirit, what am I to learn in this situation? I know I want to be on mission for you. I want to be making disciples. What am I to learn in this situation as the living church, as, my, as a disciple of Jesus. Just a year ago, Joanne and I uh, felt a need to go to Atlanta and visit her, her brother, her brother Dave. And uh, Dave and his wife, Peggy, are there, and they have a ministry. Uh, they were, for decades, they were in the pastorate. Ten years ago, they left the pastorate and started a ministry out of their home called Teammates in Ministry. It's a ministry to missionaries, to ministry couples, to, to uh, people in ministry. And here's their, their, their purpose statement. It's to lavish the love of God on the servants of God so they can be fully refreshed to fulfill the call of God. They are world class. They invite couples into their home. They have a small apartment in the basement where they can stay. They can stay for three days or a week or two weeks. And, and Dave and Peg just love on them. They just, they, it's like a five-star bed and breakfast, and they're, they're free to counsel with them, or the couple's free to be alone or to, to sit in the garden or out on the patio, and they just love them. But Dave and Peg were kind of at a low spot. They'd been praying and praying and praying, and they felt like their home is in suburban Atlanta. And they, it's a beautiful home, but they felt like a lot of couples don't come to us because they feel like what they need is a retreat. And a home in a suburb just doesn't sound like a retreat. So they said they were praying about a destination location. We need to pray that God would provide a destination location by a lake where there'd be recreation, there'd be woods to walk in, places that people could go and be refreshed. And so they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and, and a house came available on a lake. The house would be perfect for different couples to live in different places, and it was on a lake, and it was about 20% lower than the normal price. So they prayed and prayed and prayed, and they thought this is what God wanted them to do, and then the house got sold. And so the dream died. But then that house sale didn't go through, and so a week later, it was back on the market. 
So they prayed and prayed and prayed, and they began to ask people to invest in saying, we believe God is providing for us this destination location on a lake. It's perfect. The price is right. We believe God's asking us to do this. And so they asked boldly, and people gave some very generous gifts. But they were not able to raise the funding that they needed by the time the, the window closed. And so they had to let it go. And they were stuck on their escalator thinking, why, God, why did you do all this? They called their donors back and said, you know, the money that you gave us is uh, not going to be buying a house, so if you want us to send it back to you, we certainly will. But all the donors said, no, you keep it because God has a ministry for you. And here's the message that they began to hear as they made their way between Bithynia and Asia and they came to their Troas and they're saying, God, what do you have for us? Here's the message they heard. And the message was this, Dave and Peggy You are the destination. You are the core of this ministry. What God is doing through you is what He wants people to experience. Stay where you are, and now what they have is they have a renewed joy, a renewed purpose. They have resources they never had before. They can grant scholarships for people to come who wouldn't normally be able to afford the cost, and they have a new lease on life. But they really had to grind through it between January and about March or April last year, wondering, why, God? Why did you have us on this escalator if it's going to stop here? Well, this is one of the principles of the Scripture that God is always leading us. And you know, He never wastes your experience. Sometimes when you are stuck somewhere and you wonder, what is God doing? What He's doing, He's he's equipping you with a special radar that you will carry into ministry, and you'll be able to see people and spot people who are going through something exactly like you went through so that you can identify with them and give them the encouragement that you received when you were going through that whole procedure. What does this new year hold for you? Are you at a Troas moment? Your elevator's been stuck. Your escalator's been stuck. You don't know exactly what to do, but you do want to make disciples. You do want to be on mission for, the, for Jesus but you need that next step. Well, you know, with some degree of hindsight, we can look back on this passage and see that God knew exactly what He was doing because it was at Troas that Paul receives a vision. He is in Asia at Troas, and God calls him over to Europe. And this is the means by which you and I are sitting here today, that the gospel came to Europe. Paul was able in Troas to meet Dr. Luke, and if you know anything about Paul's injury report in the rest of Acts, you know that he needs a doctor to accompany him. So Dr. Luke joins the team. You can see it in in verse 10 of chapter 16 when he uses the pronoun we. Before that, it was they. Now it's we. Luke continues with them. God is going to reach Asia where Paul was prevented in going because on the last part of his trip, he stops in Ephesus, the principal city, plants a church there, and the Ephesian church plants six other churches through which all of Asia heard the gospel. Those are the seven churches of the book of Revelation. God had a plan. God had a plan for Bithynia because when Israel or when, when Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans and the, the Israelites or the, uh, the Christians scattered, many of them went to that North Sea community, and Peter writes to those scattered tribes, it was they who were going to evangelize that region for Jesus Christ. And Timothy, in his walking with Paul, the miles and miles he sailed and walked with him, Timothy would be left in Ephesus as the pastor of the church that Paul planted there. 
And obviously, in hindsight, we look back and say that, see that Paul became, through all these, these experiences, a writer. And it's through that writing we now have a significant piece of the New Testament that he writes to the churches that he founded. Well, it's not about knowing the future for sure, and it isn't about having a perfect plan. It's about being involved in the mission of the church, which is making disciples. So the question this morning as we close is this, am I making disciples? Am I involved in recruiting the willing? Am I involved in some way in reparenting the teachable? Am I involved in responding to His guidance day by day? And maybe an even more fundamental question is this, am I growing as a disciple? How is God leading me today? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that You have preserved these stories for us that are not just stories. They are filled with the DNA of the gospel which we carry in this living body called the church today. And we now ask, Lord, that by Your Holy Spirit, You would pierce each one of us and and ask each one of us, in what way are You growing as a disciple? Lord, we desire to see more and deeper discipleship so that our lives and our community, and our world is transformed by the power of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.